This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. A hashtag I often find myself using is this, my garden makes me a better person. And it's true. I am a kinder, more focused, relaxed, and intelligent human being after I get some time to work in my garden, to take a walk, or to even sit on a bench in the park midday near my day job. I think for those of us who love the garden, our urban trees, the open trail, or the wilderness campsite, this is something we feel instinctively. And as it turns out, we aren't wrong. There's some solid science from around the world to support our sense of improved well-being in the presence of the sights, sounds, smells, and fabric of nature. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Florence Williams, a fellow at the Center of Humans and Nature and a visiting scholar at George Washington University. Her work focuses on the environment, health, and science. Her award-winning first book, Breasts, A Natural and Unnatural History, was published in 2012. Her newest book, The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative, is on shelves now. Welcome, Florence. Hi, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me on. Tell us a little bit about your background and describe your history with an attachment to or affection for the great outdoors and nature in general. Sure. I'm, I didn't grow up as the most nature-connected person, actually. I grew up in the middle of Manhattan in New York City on the 11th floor of an apartment building. <laughs> I didn't even have so much as a window box. Um, but I did have Central Park nearby. And as you know, Central Park was designed by Frederick Law Olmsted. And uh, it's just the most amazing place. He designed it, I think, with with people like me in mind, you know, women and children and kind of everyday working people so that they could experience, um, you know, the, the wonders of nature. And I was in there a lot, even as a child alone. I rode my bike there. Um, I picnicked there. My mother and I used to go on weekends and I would go sometimes uh, with friends after school. And I kind of was in love with nature through Central Park. As a teenager, I actually was fortunate enough to be able to experience um, kind of bigger wilderness immersion. And that was because my dad was a huge uh, canoeist. And so we would take our canoes and a van and drive out west every summer and go camping for three or four weeks, starting when I was about 13. And that, as I've learned, is actually a really influential time for kids to really bond with the natural world. And so for me, uh, wilderness also became very important in my imagination and my worldview. And you grew up and you went on to further study. Talk a little bit about that before we get into the journey that led you to this book. Sure. Um, I was a liberal arts major. I was an English major in college. Uh, I actually didn't do a lot of science. And it was only when I became a journalist after college that I became really interested in the connections between people and the environment. I spent many of my early journalistic years um, writing about things like the Clean Air Act, the Forest Service, or forest policy, and I just craved the ability to put people back into that picture. Mm-hmm. And that's what led me into writing about environmental health uh, and into, into really being more interested in science and, and biology and our cells and how all these things interact with the world around us. And you ultimately moved to Colorado. 
I moved to Colorado right after college. Actually, it was my first job in journalism, working for a wonderful little environmental nonprofit newspaper, which is still around, called High Country News. Then you ultimately move to to Boulder, and you continue your professional work, and then you move to Washington, D.C. Talk about that that period of time and that transition for you personally. Sure. I mean, you'd think growing up in New York City, I would have felt very much at home coming back to a big metropolitan area. But in fact, I'd been living for over 20 years in the Rocky Mountains by then. And moving back to D.C. was really, really tough. It was tough on my nervous system. It was sort of tough on my psychology. Uh, We moved back for my husband's job. And while D.C. is a wonderful city with many rich opportunities and brilliant people and lots of idealism, um, uh, maybe more so than than currently, but it was a very exciting place to be. Um, But even so... I really missed the mountains, and I felt it deep in my bones. I felt that absence. Um, And part of that loss, that loss of connection to nature, really um, got me thinking about what does it mean to lose that, and what does it mean not to be so connected to nature. For me, I I wasn't sleeping very well. Um, I, I was really rattled by the loud noise environment in which I found myself. Um... I, I found, you know, the sort of Euclidean geometry, <laughs> the straight lines and the asphalt, um, all, all of these kind of urban elements, um, you know, I, I found them to be really unsettling. And even though I, I made an effort to sort of, you know, go for walks in the park or, uh, you know, to get out on weekends, um, I, I still just really felt like, wow, something big has shifted. Something big has changed. And I want to know what the science says about this. And this then leads you into the journey of the development of your newest book, The Nature Fix. And which came first? You're sort of noticing acutely some of these changes in yourself, this sort of core response of agitation and a little mild depression even uh, to the new urban environment you found yourself in. And you, you were given assignment from outside to go to Japan and study the forest bathing. Did that come before you were noticing these things or did it come after? It actually came a little bit after. So I moved to D.C. I had my kind of nature deficit freak out, <laughs> my depression, my sleeplessness, my anxiety. And then sort of out of the blue, I got very lucky. I mean, I have been working for Outside Magazine for a long time. I'm a contributor there, contributing editor. And um, they called and they said, you know, we really – you write about science for us. We really want you to write about kind of the science behind nature deficit disorder. Is it real? What is it? And they said, go find something to write about. And so I, I sort of got lucky, I think, and stumbled onto this story about forest bathing in Japan, which was this practice being sort of promoted by the Japanese government to encourage citizens to get out into their wonderful national parks and national forests and to kind of de-stress. And the Japanese are are really stressed out. And it's it's partly because, you know, Tokyo is a huge, huge, overstimulating urban environment combined with the Japanese work ethic, which, you know, drives crazy hours of, of work and work stress combined with this wasn't very long after the earthquake um, in, in Fukushima. And so, it was it was neat to me that Japan was actually trying to do some hard science around de-stressing in a forest environment. And so outside said, okay, that sounds good. We'll send you to Japan. 
so it was really this kind of wonderful experience for me. And, and fortunately, I also got to spend some time in the forest with the researchers who were doing things like measuring um, volunteers, heart rates, cortisol levels, um, brain waves. Um, and, and I got to try some of these things out on myself. I did a little bit of participatory journalism. And um, sure enough, you know, my physiology also responded to this forest environment. Uh, and so it was, it was just a really cool experience that really sort of drove these points home that I had been intuiting, you know, but not really seeing backed up in science. It, it does not appear to be a big book, but it is very dense with information. And you interweave beautifully a lot of hard science reporting with personal interpretation and personal experience so that it's very accessible, but it is a fact-filled book. And the specifics of the Japanese research really seemed to, well, at least in one aspect, hone in on our sense of smell. Talk a little bit about that. Yes. One of the things that was so interesting about going to Japan and learning about how they interact with nature is that it's really a sensory experience. In fact, um, the Japanese word for forest bathing, shinrin-yoku, really means opening up all of your senses to the forest environment. And I, I hadn't really thought of interacting with nature that way before. You know, I think like a lot of, you know, contemporary Americans, I'm very visual. You know, I sit at a desk in an office most of the day. I don't necessarily think about you know, my sense of smell or my sense of hearing or um, tactile sensations as part of my interaction with nature. And so that was something I really thought was interesting about Japan. So you asked about the sense of smell, and the Japanese are really into this. They, they have these forests that are filled with hinoki cypress trees, which are evergreens that have a very sort of um, acerbic but absolutely kind of delicious scent. You know, it's like a Christmas tree, but even a little bit stronger. They believe, and they have done some research showing that the uh, aromatics, the aerosols from these trees actually um, help calm our nervous systems and even boost our immune cells. Uh, and so one of the interesting experiment, experiments they did for this is um, a researcher named Dr. Cheng Li um, put some subjects in hotel rooms. And in half the rooms, he misted this Hinoki cypress sort of essential oil. And in the other rooms, he didn't mist it. You know, it was just like water vapor. Uh, and then he measured their natural killer cells, which are part of the immune system. And only in the rooms with the Hinoki mist did these immune cells increase. He also replicated that in a Petri dish, you know, where he had these immune cells. And sure enough, these immune cells really increased in the presence of this essential oil. And so, it's, you know, that's just kind of an interesting, you know, possibility that our sense of smell, you know, evolved for a reason in human beings. It kept us alive. We were able to smell, um, for example, water sources. And yet, as, as modern humans, we're so disconnected from this sense of smell, especially as far as it relates to nature. One of the, one of the scientists I interviewed is a physicist, and he was looking at our visual perceptual systems and how different fractal patterns can change our brain waves yeah. in ways that make us kind of more calm or more alert or, you know, even can trigger epileptic seizures. I mean, our visual systems are very sensitive. And um, he, he told me that he sort of envisions a future, you know, where architects may be incorporating fractal geometry or fractal patterns, um, you know, onto the sides of buildings or onto you know, for example, like wall systems in offices. And I was kind of like, well, wait a minute, doesn't that mean that maybe we would never have to go outside again? <laughs> we could just, you know, look at our screensavers all day and get the same effect. 
And he was like, yeah, that's possible. But then he also reminded me that there are some people who really are nature deprived. For example, um, solitary confinement prisoners right. or um, astronauts in spaceships, you know, for six months or three years at a time. And so that there is a sort of legitimate science, I think, to simulating some of the effects that we get from nature. This original adventure that you went on to Japan and witnessing what they are doing with forest bathing, you then literally travel the globe over multiple years. You follow leads to studies going on. You start in Japan, you go to Korea, you're all across the United States. You're in Boston, you're in New York, you're in Washington. You're, you, you then move to the West. There's studies that you follow in Wyoming and in Idaho um, and in Utah, you are in Finland, you're in Sweden, you're in Singapore. It was amazing to me in reading it to, at the end of the book, look at the arc of how much research is going on in various ways on this topic. Was that a surprise to you? It was. I think in some ways, some of these other countries are just ahead of the curve uh, as far as, you know, really finding statistics and trying to measure the physiology of our interactions with nature. You know, in, in South Korea and in Japan, I think they're really, you know, kind of at the forefront of some of these physiological measures, um, you know, and, and that may be derived, you know, from, from their culture, which, which really kind of is more connected in some ways through their gardens, through the bonsai, their religion, you know, perhaps than, than in Judeo-Christian cultures where our relationship to nature has kind of been one of dominance, right? And so I think these other countries in some ways are, are just thinking about it a little bit differently and really adding to the conversation in, in ways that I felt like really informed the book and informed the science. Mm -hmm. The range of different fields of science that were approaching this from different angles was remarkable. Describe for listeners the, the primary scientists that you interacted with throughout the course of the book and that you pulled out in order to highlight their work and what they exactly they were looking at? Sure. Uh, you know, I think, uh, as I mentioned, in, you know, in these Asian countries, uh, the scientists are, are, are really good at kind of teasing out different physiological effects and kind of measuring what's going on, um, you know, with our heart rate variability or our blood pressure or cortisol levels. But in Western Europe and in Northern Europe, the science is, is stronger because it's so epidemiological and very large scale. So, you know, Europe has these incredible um, healthcare records because it, these are nationalized healthcare systems. They have records going back. They have incredible kind of mapping capability. And so you see epidemiologists all over Europe and the, in the UK who are um, kind of overlaying maps of green space with health data. And they are finding some amazing things that also mm -hmm. really inform the science. For example, people of similar economic status and similar education level may live in different neighborhoods with different amounts of green space. And what researchers are finding is that the closer you live to more trees and more green space, the healthier you are, especially in diseases that are stress-related. So the cardiovascular diseases, metabolic diseases, depression, you see vast improvements, or well, I don't know vast, but you see improvements in people the closer they live to green space. But when you throw that out across this ginormous population level, what it adds up to, even these are small changes, it adds up to big changes in the healthcare budgets, big changes in productive work days, 
So countries that have made an effort to plan their cities around parks, put more parks, more trees up, these cities are really seeing clear benefits in the health and well-being of the people who live there. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Today, we're speaking with Florence Williams, an award-winning writer on science and the environment. We're speaking about her personal reasons and professional research journey for her newest book, The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative. We'll be back after a break to hear more about her adventures and revelations. Stay with us. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. This week, we're speaking with Florence Williams, author of The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative. Having grown up in New York City, Florence went on to spend a large part of her professional writing career until now, living in or close to the wide open wild spaces of the West. When her husband's career took their young family to Washington, D.C., she found herself experiencing a depression and irritability that ultimately led her to a curiosity about the physical, emotional, and intellectual effects of access to nature on not just her, but the human body and soul as a whole. The Nature Fix is the story of her research into this question. We're just back after a break to journey further. Welcome back. I think I'm right in saying that one of the one of the results that you found was that if you had green space within reach, and it, it was a specific range um, of different socioeconomic levels, the less well off improved proportionately greater in greater measure than the well-off improved. So that just the simple act of access to green space improved the lot of those who need it most. Yeah, that's right. So in that way, greenery is kind of a social leveler. Right, which I, uh, I read in the book where you talk about how happy that would make Frederick Law Olmsted was really moving. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. He believed, he knew it. He knew it intuitively that nature could really help the working classes. Uh, and these studies are really bearing him out on so many levels. So people who are interested in kind of the social determinants of health or in creating more equity around healthcare are really taking a hard look at some of this green space data because it could have profound consequences, you know, for how we design cities, how we grow these megalopuses, you know, all over the world. As you say, more of us are going to be moving to cities, which is kind of daunting and chilling. But at the same time, we now have some of the tools to really improve the lives of people who live in these cities through some of these concepts. So beyond the epidemiological aspect and some of those studies. Talk about what you were finding in Finland and Sweden. Some very interesting research has gone on there where they'll, mostly this is questionnaire based, although some of it is cortisol based too, but they'll, they'll put subjects in different levels of greenery. So some subjects will hang out in a city street, some will hang out in a kind of highly developed or busy urban park, and some will hang out in a more, um, kind of protected, forested, kind of deeper, almost wilderness kind of park. And they'll look at measures of happiness and well-being, even after just short visits to the park, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, sitting or walking in these parks. And what they found is this: there's this kind of dose curve that people are happiest and most optimistic. They express um, less anxiety, less anger, 
um, the more nature they're in. So people in the city did not experience much improvement in their kind of happiness quota or their vitality index. People in the city park showed a small increase and then people in the sort of you know, bigger forested, more protected parks showed a much bigger increase. So there's this kind of interesting dose response or kind of immersion response that the more nature you get, the better. And ultimately, Finland, you know, is a fortunate country in that it's incredibly forested. There are lots of forests, there are lots of trees, and the Finnish people really use them. They love to ski, they love to hike, they love to pick berries. Um, they are fortunate enough that that many of them have kind of summer cottages out in the country or out in the woods. And so the Finnish researchers are now really recommending, hey, we think people need a minimum of five hours a month. Mm of immersion into these forested areas in order to prevent depression. So they've ended up with this kind of specific prescription. Discuss the other dosage levels that you uh, follow in the book and what you come to find out with them. One interesting kind of conceptualization, the way I think of it, is a nature pyramid. And this is a concept that was is really being promoted by a University of Virginia professor named Tim Beatley. He's an urban planner. I thought it was a really helpful way to look at sort of the way we access nature and how to apportion it, you know, in our lives. And so it's like a food pyramid that the base of the pyramid really provides our kind of sustenance, you know, our sort of daily bread and butter, as it were. And so with nature, that would be the nature that's near us. That's really easy to access. Most of us live in cities. So it would be our city parks, our trees, our backyards, the birds at our window, the views from our window. Even these micro bursts of nature can actually be restorative to us mm. on some level and, and even help rest our kind of busy task oriented brains, boost our creativity. So that's kind of the at the bottom layer. And we need a lot of that. We need as much of that as we can get kind of every day. And then the middle of the pyramid is this slightly deeper, intentional um, journeying into natural spaces. So the parks, regional parks, maybe places where we can get to on weekends, maybe you know more intense bursts in our garden that are kind of just more intentional time and space in, in nature. And then at the top of the pyramid are these kind of rare doses that are nonetheless really important in our in our kind of life cycle and that would be what I what I would call the kind of the deeper the deeper bursts of wilderness um, and in you know in the United States we're really fortunate to have wilderness and many of us have noticed that there are certain times in our life when we really can benefit from some time in in this kind of space so maybe um, for example you know during a time of grief or a time of life transition or just when we need to kind of envision our future and or our self-concept. So I think I think adolescence, for example, is a really important time for kids to, you know, spend some time in this kind of more intimate, deeper nature space. You know, I sort of bemoan the loss of kind of rites of passage ritual in our society. And I think if there's any way to replace that with, with nature the way it once was, I just I think kids would actually really benefit from that. What is happening in our brain that when we are able to get out into nature and to walk and to focus, some portions of our brain quiet down and other portions of our brain are able to actually become more active and we become better problem solvers, we become better creative thinkers. Describe this, these, this research that you were finding. 
Sure. There's some really interesting neuroscience research going on in the United States, actually. There's a professor in Utah named David Strayer who has measured people's brains or measured their kind of cognitive skills after three or four days out in the wilderness. And he found a 50% improvement on tests of creativity in people who'd spent three or four days in the wilderness. And he thought that was so interesting that he next decided to actually measure their brain waves kind of more directly using portable EEG units. And what, and I actually participated in one of these studies. I, I witnessed one and I, I actually put on one of these portable EEG units myself. It's kind of like this bathing cap with a, a bunch of different probes in it. And what he's finding is that our frontal cortex, our frontal lobes, which are the parts of our brains that are so kind of overworked, you know, in contemporary life. It's like what we use when we read email or when we're looking for a parking space or we're navigating the millions of things on our to-do list, our, our judgment. This is all in our frontal lobes. And what he's found is that in people who spend a few days out in nature, that part of their brain really quiets down. And so he's wondering, well, where's the blood or where's the activity in the brain going instead? He hasn't really figured that out yet, but he's he's thinking based on you know some other studies and other research that it's really going to parts of the brain that are more associated with um, things like empathy, things like creativity, things like daydreaming, dreaming about our future or you know working on relationships with other people. So in that way, I think there's this really interesting kind of idea that in order to be civilized people, we really need wilderness and we need nature. There is so much information in the book. We, we can't cover it all in our short time together. There are descriptions of how different kinds of nature experienced in different ways really help an enormous range of humanity from ADHD children to depressed middle-aged women to seriously traumatized military veterans returning home from war. We need to understand and prioritize how important nature is to us. And so if I have one message to convey, it's go outside. <laughs> go outside as often as you can. Thank you very much for joining us today, Florence. It's been an honor to have you. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for your interest in the book. Florence Williams is a fellow at the Center for Humans and Nature and a visiting scholar at George Washington University. Her newest book, The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative, is out on shelves now from Norton. For more information on Florence, her books, her regular contributions to Outside Magazine, her Audible series, and more, please visit FlorenceWilliams.com. Our conversation was well over an hour. If you'd like to hear more specifics on the research Florence studied, took part in, and what she learned from each, including the studies on nature making us more generous and her trip down the river of no return, please visit mynspr.org cultivating place for this week's audio extra to listen. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Thank you for listening. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and JewelGarden.com. The program is produced by Sarah Bohannon and made possible in part by the Stanley Smith Horticultural Trust. For this week's audio archive, The Audio Extra with Florence, or to subscribe to the podcast, please visit mynspr.org. For more information, including many photos, please visit jewelgarden.com. 
For daily photos and more, follow Cultivating Place on Instagram and Facebook. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.